Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 109 for September 13th, 2007. Steve's e-commerce system. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time for Security Now, everybody's favorite security podcast, the number one tech podcast in the nation. Thanks to our listeners. Yeah. yeah. According to the podcast awards, you're going to go down and get your award in a couple of weeks. I'm, I absolutely am looking forward to it. I will be in Vancouver, so I can't come congratulate you, but it's, fun. it's ironic. You'll be in Ontario, California. <laughs> and I'll be in Vancouver, Canada. That's true. <laughs> uh, but congratulations. I think that's just really wonderful. Really great news. Well, again, we owe it to our listeners because I yeah. didn't even know the competition was happening. And then we pushed out that quick little quickie short oh, podcast took. saying, oh, my God, you know, everybody, please vote for us. I would love to win this. And our listeners made it happen. Well, so. you know, I make a point of not, you know, m- most podcasts are always lobbying to get, you know, voted up in Podcast Alley and stuff. And I. We did it once just to prove we could do it, and then I've made a point of not mentioning it ever again. Because, you know, I, we know you love us. <laughs> we don't need to win any popularity contest. God, I want a whole shelf full of trophies, It's, it's Leo. nice to have the award, though. <laughs> that's different, you see. That's, that, I think that's nice. And, you know, I've got, my, I've got my little shelf. It's not a big shelf, but i got my little shelf, and I'm satisfied. Yeah. So now it's yeah. your turn, Steve. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll happily do that. And our <laughs> listeners, if they... Uh, if they uh, keep supporting us, then I'll be, you know, super delighted. So. Excellent. Excellent. So now it's time to talk about uh, security and all its many guises. Today, we're actually, this is going to be kind of fun. I'm looking forward to this. We're going to talk about something Steve did. Steve is a developer. I mean, that's really what you are first and foremost. You're famous for GRC, uh, uh, not only for your commercial product, SpinWrite, but all f- for all the little free programs you write. Oh, Leo, when I can when I can arrange my life so that I can just go hide in a corner and code, mm. I am I am never happier than yeah. then. Yeah, you know, I'm it's sympathetic. Just, I feel I feel the same way, really. Uh, I, just I just love doing I, it. I love coding. Yeah, um, I and, just yeah, never so, do it, so I'm so rusty. It's not worth the energy anymore. It takes well, me a few, it takes me a week just to figure out what I forgot. Oh yeah, you got to do yeah. it all the time. How do you code every day? No, I wish. I mean, I really, really wish, but there are like days I'm, 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 I'm at the moment I'm working on implementing a round of sort of internal updates to our e-commerce system. Uh, Sue, my operations gal had said, Hey, you know, it'd be nice to be able to search on, on email domain names, not just email addresses. And, you know, I, I had just, I thought, oh, okay. And she'd asked for that a while ago because, for example, people at IBM want to know if, like, who, el- who else at IBM has purchased copies of SpinWrite. Oh, and yeah. she had no way to do that because I'd written everything, you know, to do specific types of searches that we thought would be useful. Anyway, there's, so I'm, I'm doing a bunch of those. And I thought, you know, let's, uh, in, in going back into the code, I saw 
some things that I had sort of forgotten that I had done that I really liked a lot. And also someone once asked us, and I had referred to this in an earlier podcast, like, you know, what's the thing I'm most proud about in my e-commerce system? And what's the, you know, were, were there any, you know, sort of anecdotal mistakes I made? So I thought that would really be a fun thing to talk about since I'm all sort of back into it at the right, moment. Cool. Um, but we've got a bunch of feedback stuff I want to I want to cover first. Before before you do that, let me just mention Astaro, yep. our great sponsor, because uh, you know they 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 have just been so great and they're still with us. And I just think they're so. Uh, it, it's if you're into security or if your your job, it, let me put it this way: if your job is to secure your your business, if that's what you get paid to do, you need to know about Astaro. A S T. I should probably do A S T A R O dot. Com. They are one of the best-known names in security. And uh, because their Astaro Security Gateway, which is a, a simple appliance, combines kind of best-of-breed in both open-source and commercial software, you really get in one box everything you need. I, let me just list I mean, the amazing stuff you get in the Astaro Security Gateway. All in, it's, one, it's about the size of a router. They have different sizes, but the one I have is about the size of a router. It works just like a router, except... You get anti-spam built in, anti-phishing, dual virus protection for email. You get transparent encryption so your your users don't even know they're sending and receiving encrypted mail. It just happens automatically, which means you also get signing automatically. It's got complete content filtering for the web, including an antivirus for the web, anti-spyware. You can control instant messenger, peer-to-peer. And of course, you know, it's what you'd expect. It's a firewall, but it also has remote access and VPN via SSL as well as a PPTP and L2TP and IPsec. Um, and, of course, intrusion uh, protection. I mean, you, you you got it all in this box. Now, you, don't take my word for it. I just want you to try it. Astara will set it up for you absolutely free. You can demo the unit. Call 877-427-8276. That's 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O. And uh, you get a free demo unit, and you can try it. And I guarantee you, you know, not only... Will your your client desktops be happy? The boss is going to be happy because the spam goes away. There's no security issues. 877, the number four, Astaro. And you know, if you're a home user and you're hearing this and you say, I want to do this, there is it, it's absolutely free for non-commercial use. You can download it through their site. It's uh, astaro.com slash security now. And I just I just want to let you know, this these guys are good people and they've really been great for uh, supporting security now for so very long. That's 877, the number four, Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. We thank them for their support of security now. All right, Steve, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I know you want to. Let's talk about addenda, errata, and, and uh, anything else you want. Miscellaneous flotsam and jetsam. Flotsam and jetsam. Um, okay, first of all, um, one of the more popular things on our Security Now page is that feedback form uh, down at the bottom of the page. I... Uh, it was actually, it was, I think it was episode 101. So about two months ago, I commented to our listeners that if it were easier for them to just send the email to the same email account that the web form sends it to, that they could, and that it was uh, securitynow at grc.com. Uh-huh. Well, about 24 hours later, <laughs> we began getting spam really? on that. Well, that's good. Spammers listen to the show, I guess. Well, okay. I, I actually think spam comes from a, a couple sources. For, um, for one thing, Elaine 
our fantastic transcriptionist dutifully transcribed the email address. Oh, well, there you which, go. Which, of course, went on to the web uh, in four different fashions, right. you know, HTML, text, and PDF. Right. And so maybe it was scraped off of there. But the other thing we've seen through the years is that we'll get spam, for example, on our corporate accounts, presumably because um, people get some infections on their machine and and you know these these um, Trojans will suck up all the email addresses in their um, in their email client and then you know start sending spam to those so so it may have been that that that, um, that security now at, at grc.com ended up being in people's email you know out um, uh, outboxes and got picked up that way. Makes anyway, sense. one that way or another, sense, yeah. It, yeah, one way or another, it was a disaster. But a feedback it, form wouldn't be in their email address. So that's, no. that's something else. Right, right. No, it, it, it was the fact that I told people the uh, the direct oh, you address. address. Okay. Exactly. Anyway, so I've had to shut that down. Um, anybody who does try to send email there will get a, a polite bounce message saying, well, we're sorry, but the bots found this account, so we've had to close it. What I did, what I decided to do, though, because that Security Now page has gotten quite long, is I decided to move that feedback form to its own page. So I just wanted to let people know that there is a new page. It's actually only linked at the moment from the bottom of the Security Now page in case people are used to going, digging all the way down to the bottom, scrolling down to the bottom of that long page. Um, and i got to do something about that. That's part of the, the project I'm on now um, in, in sort of fixing a whole bunch of things that have been loose ends on the GRC site is I'm going to reorganize our Security Now page because it's just, you know, right now it's a huge long page of 108 individual podcast notes. So I'm going to do something to fix that. But grc.com slash feedback. Uh, I know you like the the nice short URLs, Leo. (laughs) I'm not the only one. (laughs) So in your honor, uh, grc.com slash feedback is is a feedback page which replaces the form that used to be at the bottom of the Security Now page. And I did something this this time different, and that is I added a subject line to the form. It used to be that there was just sort of a, a big box where people could write what they wanted to send and then optionally provide their name, their location, and email address um, so that we were able to say, hey, you know, Bob in New Brunswick is, you know, written, written to us, ha- you know, has a question and so forth to allow people to put that stuff in if they wanted to. But in the email that it that that form sent me, I had just sort of a default security now feedback subject line. Now the user can put that in. And, oh, I tell you, I mean, I've been getting the feedback and it's so nice to sort of just be able to scan the subject lines and see what people are writing about. So it's an improved feedback form in addition to being a little more bot obfuscational. So I um, experimented actually with putting recapture on there and, uh, the recaptcha API turns out to be very easy to use if you've got scripting enabled, but it sort of fights you if you don't have scripting enabled. 
and I didn't want to require our users to have scripting enabled. So I ended up just sort of abandoning reCAPTCHA for the time being, and it's, it doesn't seem to be a problem with, with um, form spam no. here anyway. So As, we'll as see you how and I goes. both know, CAPTCHA doesn't, doesn't work. So it's just a nice – It's I like the I, – I still use it just because I want people to help write books, but <laughs> type in books. Right. But it's not, you know – it's not the best way to fight spam. I, th- I like what um, you've done. Yeah, I think it's going to be good. So we'll, we'll see and how it goes. Cleverly, you, you've cleverly crafted this. So because I get a lot of form spam, comment spam, but if you cleverly craft your form, you don't get that. Well, yes, and and I mean, you know, it's worth mentioning to people what I did. I don't think that we're going to have any listeners who are going to be spamming me. But for example, in the prior form, I labeled with text. I used text to label the fields. And I thought, well, that's a problem. So now I'm using images to label the fields. I've reorganized them, and there are some dummies in there also. Yeah. So, so for example, you know, it just it's going to be much less easy, much less automated for something to come along and fill out the form and and have it send email to me. So anyway, so I did a little, you know, I mean, I didn't want to go overboard, but it's a little, you know, it's a little bot hostile without making a big deal about it and without being at all user hostile, which I'm I'm really happy about. That's great. Yeah. No, I think um, that's neat. In fact, at some point It'd be great to. Did you make this stuff up, or was there somewhere you went that documented some ideas about this? I mean, how, oh, Leo, it's assembly code. I just wrote. <laughs> I but wrote you, the, you thought about the ideas of moving forms around, the fields around, and obfuscating, and so forth. Yeah, you yeah. should document that at some point. You don't have to give away your particular secrets, but I think it'd be a good idea to help others do this. Yeah, and it is nice to have something that doesn't doesn't run the users through the hassle of CAPTCHA, exactly. yet still is moderately still resistant. Yeah. On the other hand, I, I really do think that this is a function of, as we've talked about before, it's a function of the value of cracking the form. Certainly, this is completely crackable if somebody really wanted to go to the trouble of doing yeah, it. but they don't do that, right? Exactly, because it's not like I'm giving away Yahoo email exactly. accounts. That's exactly. just, you know, send me, you know, send me your comments sort right, of thing. Right. So it's a relatively low-value thing for someone to try to crack. Right, right. Um, in talking about defragmentation, you know, we, we, we talked, I may, it may have been a comment last week in last week's podcast where a listener asked, you know, what was the free defragging tool that I had mentioned? I said, well, the one I had mentioned wasn't free. I, I had mentioned Vopt, right, V-O-P-T, right, right. at version 8, which I really like. Wait, I think it's at version 8 too. But, uh, but the one I'm using now is Perfect Disk. Well, it turns out, first of all, I got two things. Um, someone calling himself Botsing, uh, B-O-T-S-I-N-G, posted in the GRC news groups uh, that there was something that Mark, our old friend Mark Rusunovich, had done uh, at SysInternals, who, uh, who of course has now been purchased by Microsoft. So it's over on the Microsoft site. He's got something, a piece of freeware called page defrag so if you just put page defrag into google it'll you know the first thing that comes up is microsoft's instance of that um and it does the for free does a defrag of the swap file your registry hive files oh. event log files hibernation files and and ba- basically those things which which are in use at the time that you're defragging which would not otherwise be defragable so if you were to use that and any other defragger, for example, you know, Vopt, then you sort of get the best of both worlds, even though 
Perfect Disc, which is really my current favorite, um, does that as well and does a bunch of other things also. Then we got a note. So that someone, doesn't it doesn't do your whole drive. It does the key things though. It just it just does those those main system files which are normally not movable while the system is in use ah. because because they are they are in use and, and so Mark. Mark came up with a way to make that happen. That's free. Uh, Microsoft offers that for free. Uh, if you do a search for Microsoft and Sys internals, you'll find that there's like a, a lot of programs there. Oh, yeah. Th- th- those are all of the things that, that Mark has done over, stuff, you know, yeah. over yeah. the years. So I presume it's there as part of that package. Yep. Yeah. Yep, it is. Uh, and then we had a listener named Don Edwards, D-O-N-N Edwards, who I guess he's a long time uh, defrag fanatic is the way I, I don't think he would mind me describing him that way. Uh, he's also a listener and he, he made a blog posting that whose title was Mr. Hard Drive, meaning me, yeah. Mr. Hard Drive uses perfect disc, which turns out to have been his favorite defragger after extensive defragger analysis. Um, I'm I'm mentioning this, and we will have a link in our episode notes because he's got extensive reviews of twenty commercial defraggers and a and twenty freeware defraggers. Wow! So forty. I didn't know there in, were that many. It's unbelievable. <laughs> um, the and, and the little bit of the history here, I sort of browsed around trying to understand, sort of to get an overview, so I could explain this to our listeners. Um, he also was a perfect disc follower. That was with all of his reviews. I mean, like seriously, 40 defraggers, both commercial and freeware. As I understand it, perfect disc was his chosen defragger. Then he heard me mention Vopt and took a look at Vopt. And he decided, wow, I like that too, because Vopt is faster whereas perfect disk is more thorough. Ah. And so his his solution is both. to use yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. is to use yeah. vopt like more frequently right. to keep things under control and then perfect disk occasionally to like do major, you know, deep cleaning sort of Can defragging. We, before we go too much farther, do you really think this is necessary? No. Okay. No. <laughs> I just I've been I saying just, for years Defragging is overrated. There's some people who need it. If you're, you know, if you're digitizing video and you have big, large files and you need a lot of space, okay, they have to be read and write very quickly. Okay, maybe every six months, every quarter, you can optimize. But some people do this daily. Well, I got to say, Leo, with with what Microsoft is doing now with their continual patching, their patching system files all the time that would normally not be moving. And so oh. it really does create a much greater level of fragmentation on your drive than in the old days where you installed the OS and it just sat there happily. And, of course, Microsoft's OSs are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, I, I don't know. For me, it feels good to have it defragged. It's, you know, there have been benchmarks that sort of come out either way. Like, yes, it makes more uh, it speeds things up or no, it really doesn't. Or, you know, you're having to do it, you know, it, it like defragging is more wear and tear than just letting the, the frags sit where they may. So I don't know. I just like it. I like the idea of, of pulling things together. Um, what I normally do is I will do a defrag before I do an image because I like the idea of, 
of sort of creating a nice compact image, even though the images are smart, obviously smart enough to handle fragmentation. It's like, well, why do I want to make an image of a fragmented drive? I'd rather make an image of a nicely all set to go, you know, kind of cleaned out drive. That's also an opportunity to delete, you know, this, you know, huge amounts of cookies that tend to accumulate to delete all the junk out of your temp directories and just sort of do a little, you know, a little housekeeping before you do it. Then, then, then you do a defrag, then you do an image. Yeah. So, okay. That's my approach. Yeah. And then lastly, um, it's, I found out that our podcast has a lot of reach relative to all the talking we've been doing about multi-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. It turns out that PayPal felt a huge uh, event from our talking about my, my original discovery of the PayPal security key. Really? And similarly, VeriSign, apparently we just drove there drove them right off the chart sorry when we, <laughs> <laughs> sorry no i mean they're really happy about it but um i mean it <laughs> we came funny. to their attention we came to their attention so much so that they're playing snippets of the podcast mentions of verisign in their upper level management meetings really yeah wow um um they're interested in somehow using sort of leveraging the podcast to ex- sort of extend the reach of of their um their VIP security key tag thing and um they're going to sort of put together a deal where if if our listeners will go to their page and sort of fill out a questionnaire in return they'll make the verisign fobs available at a reduced price well that's so, great now which all I, they have to do is buy a little advertising and we could put it uh, network wide uh <laughs> i guess i should I, call them <laughs> yeah I, I, or, or next time i talk to them i mean i want to i want to make i want to keep our and my enthusiasm for um, well we wouldn't run in yours anyway you're sold out so it'd have to run another podcast anyway but they won't. Oh, okay yeah, I just want to, you know, I want to make, yeah. I want to keep us, you know, clear in terms of like right. what what's being paid for and what's not. Right. Oh, of I just think you know, you what know Veris, I do too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, what I found so out was just no advertising. They're getting this plug absolutely free. <laughs> and exactly. <aren't> I happy. <laughs> so um, it turns out that uh, some um, people who've been writing in have been unhappy. That the Verisign fob is only available to domestic purchasers, and I so I asked the 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 gal uh, who I've been talking to over at Verisign, what's the deal with that? And she said, well, it's just it's only temporary. It's just that their their current fulfillment system only runs in dollars, you know, right. d- dollar denominated transactions, and they just haven't put together everything they need in order to to sell these things. Globally, although the VIP system is running globally, and I mean, it, their infrastructure is ready to go global. Um, she was down doing some meetings in Brazil, and and what she told me was sort of interesting. She said that it was much. There were they were they quickly achieved a lot of a, tr- a lot of traction in Brazil because Brazil does not have the 
the consumer protection laws that we have in the states and that we sort of I'd actually sort of take them for granted. For example, um, we know that if your credit card gets compromised, the your, you have a, a very low liability. I, I think it's fifty dollars right. and normally right. even that is waived. That right. is if you if you challenge charges on your credit card and you validly charge them and can show that these you know these were not your purchases, they're just taken off your credit card. Not not so in Brazil. In Brazil, you can you know you are liable for those charges on your credit card. So you can imagine that consumers are substantially more leery of of you know e-commerce fraud and and really want all the additional protection that they can get. Right. Right. So anyway, um, good things are happening with VeriSign. Um, you know, they're obviously they're they're set up to be an open ID provider. Um, I had asked the question: Is there any way that you know a smaller guy can also you know take advantage of that VIP system? And so that's what we're going to pursue. Um, and uh, just to sort of, I think it'd just be fun to to be able to like have a page where people could play with their tokens on 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 GRC. So I'm going to see if I can do that. And also they want to, you know, they're they're working to to move forward um, uh, with you know other avenues like PayPal. Uh, in fact, it turns out that your favorite company, Bank of America, has just added and just announced a couple days ago that they will be offering multi-factor authentication, no longer just your favorite site key technology, Leo. Yeah, which drives me but, up the wall. Yeah. I know it does. But they, they And they've chosen a different form factor. They're not going to be using a fob. They're, they've, apparently, you can also do some sort of a credit card form factor where it's got a little LCD right. in a window and, and a button that you press in a credit card form factor. I guess they think it's you know nicer that it kind of goes in your wallet and looks like a credit card. Right. Uh, they, and apparently, we'll also send you this number via cell phone, which is what's most interesting to me. Uh, they said the card is delayed till next month. I just got an email. Oh, okay, cool. But that's going to be very interesting. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, Thank you. I mean, that's really an improvement. It's going to be really nice. And again, that's you know the the whole the whole cell phone thing is another one of VeriSign's means for doing authentication. Um, they are planning to to come up with something even better, which is a software implementation, a pure software implementation of the. The essentially the crypto that's in the fob so that it could be installed on cell phones and just be built in at zero cost. So, I mean, this, this, I'm just, I, I'm just excited about this notion because I think all of this provides a tremendous amount of leverage for, for the need for secure authentication, which is, you know, obviously not going away. I, I really believe it's just going to be uh, something we need more and more in the future. Very cool. Yeah. I'll give you, as soon as I get mine, I'll give you a report on it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any mail uh, that you want to, I guess we're kind of responding to mail right now, aren't we? Yeah. Um, I do have a, a fun SpinRight success story. Uh, actually, the, the, the subject was SpinRight success, success story with a Linux twist. Um, I try to find um, testimonials that are, you know, a little bit interesting and, and different from the sort of the, well, SpinRight did it again sort of thing. Um, this is Matt 
actually from New Brunswick. I think that's why I used New Brunswick uh, earlier as an example. It was in my it was in my head from finding this one. A Matt from New Brunswick, Canada, uh, dropped us uh, an email, uh, and he said. Uh, and the subject was, you know, with a Linux twist. He said, I've been a longtime Security Now listener and have heard the numerous reports of SpinRight success from your other listeners. I recently ran into uncorrectable error hard drive problems on my Linux machine. He says, I was more annoyed at the expense of replacing drives than worried about data loss. Every night at 3 a.m., everything's backed up to an external drive. And I've got full monthly backups on DVDRs. He says, "Parents, I'm the paranoid type." And he says, "Naturally, I turned to Spinrite to fix the errors, knowing that it supports Linux Linux partitions, and correctly assuming that it would fix the problems." The twist is that I found out the Spinrite executable works perfectly under the Win32. Wine emulation program. Oh, that's interesting. Did you know that? Um, I think I remembered that during our beta testing, but it's not something I've ever mentioned before. Wow. And so he said, I thought I'd share this in case other Linux users are also running into hard drive problems and are on the fence over buying a non-native Linux program. So you'd so, run it in Linux under Wine... Uh and exactly. So when you run Spinrite, the same Spinrite XE that you normally, you know, boot and run, when you run it, it sees that it's being run in under Windows or un, in a Windows clone environment. It pops up its little graphical dialog, and that allows you then ah. to tell it to burn or or, 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 or or to create for you an ISO image. Then you use your regular Linux um, DVD or CD, I'm sorry, CDR burning software to burn the ISO onto a CD, and that gives you a bootable CD that allows you to then run Spinrite on Linux, needing no Windows anywhere. Ah, <sighs> so it's not for running Spinrite; it's for running the installer, so that you can burn the CD, then you can run run it. Right, because Spinrite does not run under any right. OS. It you know it, it brings a little copy of FreeDOS along for its own environment, Got but it. you don't need Windows in order to run Spinrite. And that was the point that Matt here was making was, hey, you know, I ran it completely under native Linux, under Wine, and it allowed me to make my bootable CD. Or for, for, for that matter, you can, you can make a bootable floppy too, which is a lot easier for people who still have floppy drives Gosh, on their machine. And I do, because I can't, I don't know, not having a floppy drive just really always makes me uncomfortable. Right. Although you're going to be out of luck soon. I don't, yeah, I know. I don't, I don't think anybody, in fact, I wonder how many machines are sold with floppy drives at all. Yep. It's certainly, certainly Very endangered few. at this point. Yeah. yeah. Okie dokie. Let's talk about your e-commerce system. Well, it's funny. When I was, when I was getting going Many people said, what, 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 wait a minute, you're writing an e-commerce system. <laughs> you know, there's a, a thousand prepackaged e-commerce systems out there. Yep. Plenty. Yep. And, and so first and foremost was, yes, but, you know, they're not mine. I mean, I wanted to write one just because I never had before. And, it's, and I should say, it's not just because you don't trust the other ones. You may not. But it's also, I think, as you just said, you enjoy programming. And I think you enjoy learning about the problems that need to be solved to do this. It's not well, for you reinventing the wheel. Um, was, well, okay, to be fair, there was some of that. But, 
But we were, you know, being involved in security, I was seeing constant reports of flaws being found in the so-called shopping cart um, systems. So my question was, how can I trust? I mean, how can I trust and expect my my customers to trust some software that I did not write? Um, The other thing is there are third party services like Digital River. And unfortunately, Digital River are just horrible people. Um, they, I, I've I've had bad experiences with them. They, they they pursued me for years to let them sell Spinrite. Uh, they want to take a huge percentage of the retail sales, like thirty percent. They take. They also I've I've had to buy other software through them, and then I start getting spammed by them. Because I have to give them my email address when I use them to buy somebody else's software. So you're and they, protecting your users too, really? From, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I I don't want my. I mean, there's no way that I want to use a third party to do any of my. You know, to, to like capture my data or have anything to do with with order fulfillment. Because how can I trust what that third party will do? And I wouldn't be at all. Um, misunderstanding of users who said gee steve you know we wish we wish you didn't have to bounce us over to this horrible third-party site in order to buy Spinrite. that just doesn't feel like the right thing right and then finally i wanted it to work my way that is i i'd really dislike this this thing that so many e-commerce sites make you do which is the quote create an account with them you know, it's like, wait a minute, I am buying a widget of some random type. I will never be back here again, I promise you. Why do I have to create? And <laughs> I sort know, of, I hate that. Oh. I just want to buy this, even if I, you know, maybe I am going to be back. I don't want to create an account. Yes, that, the whole notion of like needing to go fill out all this this paperwork and questionnaire on the web to so you know create an account is like uh, so there are sites that are that give you the choice you can create an account and they'll like hold on to some of your stuff to make it easier if you come back later or th- they'll allow you to like bypass the create an account phase and I'm always so glad when I'm given that option well. I thought my system isn't going to have any of that nonsense. You provide only the information that we need in order to process the 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 purchase transaction and nothing more. So, you know, that's the way I designed it. I was able because I was writing it myself, I was able to to do this exactly the way I wanted to. Right. So, you know, that was the the final reason really for doing this. And the problem has been also that People have liked my system and wanted to buy it, and <laughs> That's it's not—it's not for sale. Um, I mean, I—I I didn't. But you know, I you're going to get a spate of requests after this comes out. Well, yeah, that's why I'm saying I'm I'm saying up front here that it's not for sale because it does some cool things that I have never seen anyone else do. And I'm going to explain it all and, you know, give them to the world. So anybody else who wants to write their own e-commerce system to do this is welcome to. But mine's not for sale because, frankly, I can't charge enough for it to make it worth my while to package it for sale. I mean, this is not the business I'm in. I'm in the business of, of doing these podcasts and developing software you know, like for individual end users, that's really my focus, not for other companies that want to sell stuff. So yeah. um, anyway, I did 
in, in, in thinking about how I wanted my system to work, there were a couple very cool things that I came up with. For example, my system doesn't use or require cookies and doesn't use or require scripting and has no messy URLs. That is, as you're using it, there's the, the URL is just sort of a generic um, I mean, it looks sort of per user, but it's a, it's a it's a I think it's an eight character little bit of junk at the end of a um, uh, the normal URL, which actually is just sort of the ID for the page. The question then is, how am I saving state? And let's step back a little bit from from before we answer this to remember what the model is for so-called web 2.0 that is the the idea that that browsers are no longer just receiving information from people you're no longer just putting in a url which is the address of a page which the browser then sends you and you read that and maybe you click a link and go to some other page now there's there's much more interaction between the user and and the remote server it's much more like a like an application where where you're 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 doing things but inherent in the the browser the sort of the client server model is the notion that there's a there's a transaction meaning that you're looking at a page you you do something maybe you fill out some information and then you submit it well, that all goes back to the server, but due to the heritage of the way the web works, even when you're sending information back to the server, it's actually in the form of a query because the web was built on browsers querying servers. That's all they were able to do, really. So when I fill out a form and submit it, it's actually sent as a query and I'm waiting for a response that's why you know users will be so used to seeing in IE the little globe spinning or the flag waving or whatever or in new IE the little sort of blue <laughs> disk spinning deal right. Right. or you know wh whatever mechanism the browser has for saying I've sent the query off onto the internet and we're now waiting for the response the the model is that a that a connection is created to the server the query is sent at the beginning of that connection and then the connection stays open while the while the browser is waiting for the response which is the next page so so there are several ways that in this model, in this query response model that that people have come up with for maintaining state, meaning and, and by state I mean that you know there there's like a, a a memory of what what you have done before. Now the the classic means is cookies, and this it's because of the need for maintaining state that Netscape originated the notion of a cookie. The idea being that that the server would send back to the browser literally a cookie 
which is, well, I don't mean literally, I guess that's, you know, cho- <laughs> here's a chocolate chip, cho- chocolate chip or yeah, or, or, or molasses, sugar molasses or something, um, a, 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 a cookie, cookie, a cookie in this case is, is just sort of a chunk of text. It could be, you know, um, English readable, but most often it's, it's some sort of a, a, token that has meaning only to the server and that's the point is and it's the reason it's called a cookie is it's it doesn't have to have any meaning to the user it's not visible normally to the user the idea is that the browser will accept it from the server and then any subsequent queries that is any subsequent connections and and submissions of of, of, of a of a query for a next page that the browser gives to to the server will automatically include just an echoing back of the of of that cookie. So so the idea is in an e-commerce model, you you go to some page where and you fill out a form, and then so you've got the form filled out. You then press the submit button and the form content is sent back to the server as a query. So what the server is going to do is it's going to look at the form data and maybe, you know, often you'll, you'll receive it back in response to submitting it sort of as a, okay, here's what we got from you. You know, check out your your information to make sure that it's correct before you commit to buying this. So, so now you've got that information. Well, say that you say yes. Okay, if you say yes, then the question is yes to what? Because you no longer have a form. You just have a button saying yes. So the server needs to know who among all the people may be purchasing things at the same time is saying yes. So what that requires is that that the browser have cookies enabled so that you're able to, when you say yes, the cookie goes back, the server then looks up what, what user is associated with that cookie and gets the data in some sort of a temporary database of like, purchase transactions that are that are some way along and and then processes it further the, so the point is that that you need to have cookies enabled in order for this to work well as we know some people just don't like cookies at all they've got them turned off <laughs> so rather than that breaking e-commerce and actually sometimes it will then scripting has been used in order to provide this same sort of functionality where you've got some sort of scripting, you know, code running on the page, which is, is involved in providing cookie like behavior, even though you're not actually using the, um, the cookie mechanism in the browser. But as we also know, scripting is sometimes turned off. Uh, I keep recommending that people not use scripting, although again, it can be the case that turning scripting off will break things. So one of the other mechanisms that is used for basically tracking users is, is what's called URL munging where, (laughs) 
And this is what we'll often see. For example, if you go to Amazon, bang, you know, you, you go to www.amazon.com. What you see almost immediately is some bizarro right. URL. Right. I mean, it's got all this junk in it. And so what's happening is that's a basically their saving state in the URL. That is, all the links on the pages will have that will be relative to to that wacky URL so that when you do something, you're sending back a different URL, even if you're on that page, than somebody else who's on this, who's looking at the same page because Amazon, after logging you in, has, has basically giving everybody custom pages for everything they're doing. Well, I looked at all of those mechanisms and I said, you know, I don't like any of that. I, I don't want to require my users have cookies enabled I because I discourage cookies, although actually I think first-party cookies are fine. That is, cookies that you, you're sending back to the browser that you're visiting, not to some third-party advertising site. Third-party cookies, I, I see no valid purpose for right, other than right. tracking. First-party cookies are okay, but if people have them turned off, I don't want, to, I don't want that to break my e-commerce system. I clearly don't want to require people to have scripting because here I am saying to everybody, oh, turn off scripting. It's evil. It's bad, except when you want to buy Spinrite. Then you have to turn scripting on. It's like, no, that won't fly either. And I really just sort of dislike the, the, the whole URL munging problem because um, you can end up with um, cached pages on your browser that, that end up – having like URLs in it, or you might, you know, uh, mark the page and give the link to somebody else. And so they're basically capturing something that was like your cookie in your URL. So that's a problem too. So the, and, and the overarching problem is that is this notion of the server having to know something about incomplete transactions meaning when you start to purchase there's this this the way most systems work is they'll create sort of a a a record or a database entry or something for this this not yet purchased event while the user moves through the web forms and provides the information, then you know confirms their email address, you know however many stages this purchasing transaction is, the user um, is interacting with the server over time, and and the and the problem is, what if someone you know goes a couple stages in and changes their mind, and they just they 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 hit their home page and they disappear. Well, over on the server, the server's waiting for them to proceed. It's waiting for them to press the next button, move to the next stage in the purchasing transaction, you know, give them back the cookie or the URL or whatever it is that, that the server is using in order to, to deal with it. So that requires some sort of temporary storage at the server end, and it requires that you do something about it at some point point in the future that is you expire it somehow you say well this got to be an hour old and you know we don't think this user is ever going to finish with their sale if they happen by some bizarre chance you know in the next 
in, in you know, some point in the future to press the button. Then we're going to say, we're sorry. Uh, we don't know who you are anymore because we expired your, your purchase. The point is, it's just messy to sort of have to have this data sitting there in a incomplete state and then make a determination about when you're going to have it expire. And most people think, well, okay, how else could you possibly do this? How, how could you not require that the server have any storage about this, this potential purchase as it's moving forward? Well, I solved the problem. Um, my, you system, did. <laughs> my, my system has, has no storage on the server side. Uh-huh. In, instead, what I do, I've never seen anyone do before, but I really, it, it's worked out really well, and I think it's, it's really neat. And that is that the, we'll, we'll start, for example, at the first form page. The user fills out their information and, and, and submits it to the server. So that goes to the server. The server, you know, basic, because I'm requiring no scripting, the, the, the server um, runs through the data that, they, that they've submitted, makes sure that their email address looks like an email address, makes a quick check of their credit card number to make sure that it passes the Mod 9 credit card number check, which we talked about a long time ago because it turns that, out yeah. that there's a, a simple formula you can run on a credit card number that will catch digit transpositions. Um, and basically, that's pretty much all it's useful for. But it does, if you just had a, you know, a, a typo in, in, the, in the credit card number, it would catch that. Basically, it does a sort of a first pass to make sure that the, the fields we need to be filled in are filled in and, and that the user has, has, you know, is on their way, as far as we can tell, to a successful transaction. Okay, upon submitting that data, remember that that's a query that goes to the server, and, and, and the browser's little you know, globe is spinning or whatever the, it's doing, saying, okay, we're waiting to hear back from the server in response to our query. Well, in, in my case, what I ask for is a, I, I want to show them everything they submitted and ask them again for their email address. Because it's frankly surprising, Leo. You know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen all these systems that ask your email address twice, and it's annoying. It turns out people really don't give you the same email address twice. It's unbelievable how necessary it is to ask for it a second time. And I didn't want to put it on the same page because I know what I do. I, you know, I type it wrong once. Then I cut, copy, and paste. You know, I, I, I mark and copy it and then paste it into the second field because I don't want to have to type it again. But if it's wrong twice, then it's really wrong. Right. So I, I wanted to put it over on the second page. So I show the user everything that they filled in in the form, sort of in a confirmation, and I say, you know, please provide your email address again to confirm. But that's all I'm asking for is the email address. So... What I do, which, which really worked out well, is I take the, essentially the a binary image of all their data, of their purchase data, and I encrypt it using a secret key on the server. Then I digitally sign it using a, 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 a cryptographic hash, as we've talked about before, tacking that on the end. Then I turn it into ASCII. So it's all just 
characters and numbers, and I send that back to the web browser as a hidden field in the in the next form the user is going to fill out. So all I'm asking for on the second page is their email address, and that would be one field. But then there's a hidden field, which is this ASCII blob, which is completely secure because it's encrypted and it's digitally signed. Basically, what I'm doing is I'm handing back to the user all of the data that would normally be kept temporarily on the server. And I'm keeping nothing on the server. Wow. I have no wow. record at all that this user has ever done anything because there's also... Do you also think that's typical? Is that how others, other commerce systems work? No, I've never seen this done. They're all Nor- keeping it on their own site. Well, yes. If you turn off scripting and you turn off cookies... Um, and they're, you know, basically they'll just break. They will tell you, you have to have cookies enabled in order right. to buy something from this site. That's right. Yes. It's, yeah. And I'm sure you've probably seen that Absolutely. before. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Because I mean, because the point is they're just, they're relying on cookies and they're having to maintain the user data in some temporary form at their end. Well, I just don't like that because First of all, there's a more clever way to do this, and that is to basically hand back the current state to the user's browser and, and make it be responsible for sending it back to you as you move to the next step in the process. Anyway, so that's, that, that's basically what I do, and it's worked perfectly. Um, I'm, when, when they give me their email address and they press, yes, I want to, I'm confirming my purchase. Here's my, you know, gosh, darn it. Here's my email address again. I'm typing it again for you correctly. Um, you know, then what, what I do is I, I receive their email address and this blob of data. I verify the digital signature. Then I decrypt it back into their purchase record. So I've not had to store it in the meantime, meaning if they unplug their computer, they change their mind, they, they wander off somewhere, then that's fine because um, I'm not needing to hold that, wondering what happened to them. I don't care at all. If they do go to the next step, then they're providing me with all of the data for their purchase as that next step, and I just pick it up from there. Now, I do have some things like a timestamp in what I call the envelope, which is this this binary thing. And so, just for the sake of of you know not purchasing two hours later, because that seems like an unlikely thing to have happen, I will I will expire the envelope if I receive it back. For example, three hours later, it's like eh, for the sake of making sure we're doing the right thing, I'll, I return them a screen saying, hey, you know, uh, th- this is now three hours old. This may not be what you intend. Let's start again. Sorry for, you know, sorry for making you do so. But, but you'll, show them it, what they, you'll, you'll show them what they ordered three hours ago or? Um, yes, exactly. See, I like that. It gives you the choice. Yes, exactly. Because a lot of sites just throw it out. And what it's, or and they keep very, it for days, you know. Yeah, and, and what's very cool then is that, uh, from my standpoint, I'm I'm basically I'm using the client server model, and I'm using the browser to save the state 
of the purchase as we move forward, um, never needing to store anything at all on the server. Uh, and it just, it really has worked out well. Now, one of the other things that was, uh, that w- was a bit of a runaround was, I'm sure you've seen on many e-commerce sites, these warnings on the final purchase confirmation button about n- only pressing this once or, and then waiting, or you, you may be double charged. Um, I know I see that all the time. Well, you know, this was my system. I didn't want to have to have that. That It you know, happened to me the other day with Apple's system. I bought two copies of something. Yep. Now, the, the first thing I did was I said, okay, I'm, I'm not wanting to admonish my purchasers to only click once. So I'm going to take responsibility if they double order. And so from the beginning, I, had a, I have a, an intercept page which comes up and and basically um, warns them if they, if it looks to me like they're about to purchase something that they may they may not be intending to. So, for example, and I I grabbed this off the screen um, uh, earlier so I could share it with, with our listeners. If you, for example, were to hit back on your browser a couple times and then you, you like deliberately tried to purchase the same thing again. You get a screen for me that says, your card has already been charged, is the title. Our records indicate that this credit card was recently used to successfully purchase one or more of the same products from us, less than, and then I fill in, in in this case it says, two hours and four minutes ago. While we certainly do not wish to discourage the purchase of our products, we absolutely do not want, we absolutely do want to eliminate any inadvertent purchases and unintentional charges to your account. If some glitch in our connection prevented you from receiving web page confirmation of your previous order, please do not proceed. Instead, check your email for your purchase confirmation receipt and software download instructions. If you are deliberately purchasing additional copies of our software, we thank you very much for your honest patronage and support of our work. Please click the Confirm Similar Order button below to proceed with the processing of this additional order. If this reorder is a mistake, please click the Do Not Repeat Order button below, then choose among our other site locations. So, you know, I, I, I deliberately intercepted anybody who where I was seeing another purchase come in after, you know, within, within, I think it's two days, I think within 48 hours, I decide, you know, let's make sure they're really intending to do this. Okay. Even with that in place, every so often we would get a double order. And, and it was, I mean, for the first year, this, it just drove me nuts. You know, Sue, my operations (laughs) gal would say, Hey Steve, you know, uh, we double charge somebody and it's like how can that be happening i mean i'm before i'm accepting a second order i i check the database to see whether that credit card has been charged but every so often it was it was happening well i figured out what was going on finally and and ended up fixing it and as far as i know nobody else again on earth 
has ever done this <laughs> because it is really hard. It's really tricky. It turns out that some people double click a button that you don't have to double click. You know, it's just, you know, I mean, a lot of us get into hacking. My mom does that. She thinks everything on the computer must be double clicked. I was just going to say, yes, yeah. you, you often see. Um, and that's you know, not in- her fault because it's it's not clear. Uh, yeah. Some things are double clicked. Some things are single clicked. Which should it be? Exactly. I mean, it, it, and, and it's very much the case that, you, that you'll see sort of like, you know, neophyte users double clicking on things. And, it's, you know, I, if I'm watching someone use a computer and they like they double click the start button, I think, oh, no, you know, but again, it's not, you know, it's not clear at all, which it should be. So what was happening was people were double clicking are the final purchase confirmation button. Now, Here's what happens when you do that. Um, the, the first time you click, because this isn't a button that requires double clicking, we we're, we send the final purchase confirmation transaction to the server. The server sees, okay, we're ready to go. We're actually going to 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 perform this this purchase. Now the server takes the information and and sets up a communications connection with the with the credit card verification company it happens that i'm using verisign um i wasn't always using verisign i was using something called payflow pro and i can't quite remember the company that used to own that but payflow pro is just it's like the back end provider it's I have a merchant relationship with them, and so they're the people who actually perform the the credit card processing with the electronic uh, funds transfer system in the U.S. And so, so the server, while it's got the connection open to the user waiting to confirm their purchase, it turns around and opens a connection to our our transaction provider and begins processing the credit card. Now, what would normally happen is the we would get a response, yay or nay, from that that back end provider, and then the GRC server turns around and either says we had a problem processing your card, or congratulations, you just bought yourself a copy of Spinrite. Mm. But if the user clicks again. Prior to that page coming back to them, what browsers do is drop the current connection and send the query off again. So they abandon the, 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 that open connection they had on which they were waiting for a reply, and they just start it up again. So what would happen would be an, this purchase confirmation comes in, and we go, oh, okay, this guy is um, wants to purchase. Well, what do I do? I check the database to see whether we've charged that card. But we haven't yet because we're still waiting for the, res- for the first response to come back from the credit clearinghouse to see whether th- this, this card can be charged or not. So even though I'm looking to see whether there's already a charge because this double click happened so quickly and and the the 
um, the, the back end credit processing is relatively slow, I would look in the database, not see a charge, and launch a second purchase. Okay. And this is what everybody does. So the, so the, the first one would, would clear. The second one would come back. And I would respond to the customer that, um, that you know, they had purchased SpinRite successfully when, in fact, a, a double charge snuck in. And that's why all these sites say, make sure you only click this button once. It's, 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 because, a t- it's intractable. It's a tough problem well, to solve. And I did solve it. Oh. Um, well, I guess it's what not I, so intractable. <laughs> what, what I... What I do is I, I, I have what I call in-flight orders. That is, I, I basically, I, I separated the, the user side link from the, from the back end. So, that, so what happens is I'm, I'm, I'm tracking the orders which are in-flight, meaning from our server to the back end credit processing server and i'm tracking any connections from the client so so what i what i ended up the the way i ended up solving the problem is you you say the user clicks first of 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 a double click and the order is 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 launched i i then log this in a in a in a server data structure saying okay we have an in-flight order to the the credit processor then the user clicks a second time well now i can see that we've got an in-flight order already that is i'm i'm now looking for anything pending the problem is and here was the tricky part is that in the second click i dropped the first connection the one that initiated the order and now i'm waiting I have a new connection to the server, and that's the connection that needs to receive the response. So what's, what's funky about this is that the, the query that initiated the order to our server is different from the one that needs to get the response. And so by, by separating the, the relationship between the user's browser and our server and the the set of in-flight orders that may be underway, when, once I get confirmation back from the credit pr- processing, I then have a list of potential queries. A user could, for example, click 10 times, bang, 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 bang. And that would, that would set up 10 connections to my server. Because I'm now checking for duplicate in-flight orders, only one order goes back to VeriSign for credit card approval. When the response comes back, I don't know for sure which connections are still alive because the, the, the browser will, will only have the most recent one. So what I do is I attempt to give all of them the good news or bad news knowing that all but one will fail, but that's okay because I want to get the answer back to the user, and the whole system works, and we've never had another double charge that's in neat. the last several years. That's very clever. Yeah, it, uh, cool. it ended up really working well. Well, you know, you're doing this all in assembler, right? Yep. 
Yeah, although, you know, it's just because that's who I am. That's your you language. Could cert- you could do this in any other language that, that gave you, you know, the, the kind of control you want. And now, it gives you an EXE, which IIS can run. Yes. Basically. Well, in fact, in fact, that's one of the cool things um, that uh, I did. The other, th- the other thing that I wanted was anytime you're using some third-party processing, you need to somehow separate the, your program download from like the registry uh, registration typing in a code kind of thing. I mean, virtually every time I buy software, it's you know go download the file. And then we'll get it. We're going to email you your, you know, your passcode or your registration information or whatever, because those things are always sep- you know, separated because you're just not you're not downloading the code that is like already set for the user. Well, that's one of the things that I wanted to achieve with my own e-commerce system. And I did, meaning that that when you successfully purchase Spinrite, you are given a download link and that link is absolutely unique and it's already customized for you. When you click on it, the version of Spinrite you receive knows your name, has your serial number and other data already built into it. So it is yours and it's essentially sort of pre-licensed for you, which I just really like. There is no secondary you know, rigmarole about receiving your, you know, your registration code and needing to to fill in some form, you know, that's all done. Now, one thing did catch us right off the bat, which I, I never saw coming. And that is, I wanted to give people a link, which would be good forever. That is, I want it in, in their, their email receipt, which we do send them. Here is a link you can use to download Spinrite. And the idea was there would be a, a funky-looking cryptographic token embedded in the link that would forever allow them to download Spinrite. And that's actually what we, en- we end up with a system that allows that. That's one of the other things I wanted was, for example, if somebody was traveling, they didn't have their copy of Spinrite with them, but they got into trouble, they're like, hey, I, you know, I need Spinrite. Well, if they bought it, I wanted them to be able to have access to it. And so our system will allow anyone who has ever purchased Spinrite to download Spinrite, you know, five years after they purchased it. There's no expiration. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, we have this, this, this relationship with That's our neat. customer That's th- that we want to uh, preserve. However, something messed me up in the beginning, and that is, it turns out there are parallel downloaders, you know, so-called download accelerators yeah. that, that not only open multiple connections, which I have no problem with, they also spy on their users hmm. and send the URL of anything the user downloads back to the mothership. Huh. And they, they, the idea is they build, they're trying to say, oh, this is value added because you can go to our website and see the most popular things being downloaded. What was happening was this link, which was meant to be private and never, ever shared, was being published behind the user's back 
by their parallel downloader, oh, by their downloader accelerator. Huh. And so a, a couple very early copies of, of Spinrite escaped onto the Internet. And we now we know we knew which users wow. had this had this happen because their names were in the program. And so anybody else who clicked the link got their copy of Spinrite. <laughs> which was not a good thing. Not, not something you want to avoid, yeah. So so what happened is we quickly contacted those people. We invalidated their licenses, which I already had the, the, the facility to do built into. So you were smart. You built this all in a, ahead of time, but that the person's name was in there and their license was there. Right. To keep track of, yeah. Right, although, of course, they weren't happy that their copy had gotten loose, but we said, well, it's not your fault. It's your, par- your, your download accelerator is spying on you <laughs> and basically reporting to this third party Every single thing they downloaded. I mean, basically, their privacy was being violated by this. So anyway, what I did was I realized, okay, um, I can't ever allow a download link to be used more than once. That is to say, Ah, of course, yes, if if they're going to be spied on, then they click it and it downloads. But in, in the act of clicking it, it has to expire it right then. Yes. That's the only way to avoid this. So I quickly um, did a rev of, of, of our e-commerce system, and now the links it issues, they, they are own, that literally you can click it once and it's dead. Now, you're able to ask for as many of them as you want. That is, if you want to, you can just refresh the page and it gives you another one. And then you can click it once. But nothing you have ever clicked can ever be clicked again. That is, no URL for downloading Spinrite can ever be used twice. And I also um, expire them. The The actual funky-looking um, URL that I embed in there has a timestamp in it. So it self-expires. I think it's after like 15, maybe 30 seconds. I mean, I just, I went a little overboard, but after this experience with our customers being spied on by their own download accelerators, I thought, well, better safe than sorry. And that was all right at the point that Spinrite 6 was released. I think, um, or no, I guess it was Spinrite 5 because we were initially selling Spinrite 5 through the new system. So it was like three years ago and it completely solved this problem. We never had that happen again. Interesting. Interesting. And then my my final little quick story of the thing I messed up on that was well I thought it was humorous but our cu- a couple customers didn't um, I had this generic hacker lockout that is I thought you know no matter no matter what anything else is going on I just I want my system to be a little because it's an e-commerce system and we want to we want to take it seriously I want it to be intolerant of people screwing around with it, you know, like filling out the form, guessing credit card numbers, you know, finding a stolen credit card number and trying to guess the street address, you know, that kind of thing. I, and I recognize that, that valid users might need, you know, might, might, might trip themselves a little bit. It turns out that people often use the wrong address. They'll use their home address rather than the billing address. If the home address is different than the billing address and so forth. And since I'm not, physically shipping any product i'm only electronically delivering i don't do that whole 
billing address, shipping address thing. All I want is the billing address right. because th- that because that's what the credit card companies are are locking to for as part of their it's called AVS address verification system in order to you know reduce credit card fraud. So what I decided was I would have some fixed number of transactions with the e-commerce system that is those being you know clicking a button when you've got a form filled out um for people who are upgrading from an earlier version of spinrite they receive an intermediate form where they where they provide the serial number of their of their down rev copy of spinrite which we then log as, as in order to qualify them for the discounted upgrade price. Anyway, so that number, you know, we, we've we've moved it around a bit, but I think it's um, at, at twelve right now. So twelve interactions with our system, and then I simply lock them out. I give them a page, and I say. Uh, and it's sort of a stern page because I don't expect anybody to hit this by mistake. It's like you know your contact or your conduct is incompatible with this um, uh, e-commerce systems policies or something. You've been it's spanked. It's like, exactly. I do. I give them a little bit of a swat. And it. and you know so I figure twelve. You know I mean you have to really try to hit that by mistake. Okay, but get a load of this, Leo. I forgot to reset the counter Uh-oh. when they successfully purchased Spinrite. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> so, so you're thanking so, for people for buying too many copies. <laughs> no, no. Here, he, he, here's what happened was they would, you know, try to, to fill out their um, information. Maybe they'd, you know, use the ship, their, their, bill, their home address first. Then, then they'd use their billing address. Then... There was no more – there wasn't you know, enough headroom on that card, so they would need to use a different card. Right. So they'd go back and they start again with a different oh. card. And then anyway, so here they're ex- as exhausted as we are at this point. Right. They've, and on their final confirmation, <laughs> they press the button, and it's like, yay, you successfully purchased Spinrite. Here's your download link. <gasps> Oh, Whoop, whoops. Ooh. They they then they so we've charged their card. Ev- everybody's celebrating and we're exhausted and now we won't let them have it. Oh, that's cold. <laughs> because in, in fact, not only that, when they try to download it, I insult them yeah. by saying you're a hacker. You, you know, you're <laughs> abusing the system. And now that we've got your eighty nine dollars, you can't have spin right. Oh, so anyway, of course, a couple it happened to a couple people, and I thought, and you oh, heard about it very quickly. I, I'm sure I heard about it very quickly, yep. and I was like, Gibson. I mean, it, it's you know, again, it was trivial to fix. I fixed it immediately, of course. But this is what so happens. That, it's hard to test a system like this. Uh, I mean, in 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 in. Uh, in uh, uh, yeah, you, know, uh, you have to put it into you have service. To put it in the service, yeah, and, and let everybody pound on it, and you you learn you quickly learn some lessons. Uh, and I did I to say in vitro as opposed to in vivo. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Right. Exactly. But you, so but, you know, hey, if you've got very nice users, and I'm sure they <laughs> were very uh, tolerant. Yeah. We say, oops, sorry about that. <laughs> and I, you know, I quickly went in, and I mean, it took me two seconds to change the code so that upon successfully purchasing the product, I I remove them from my hacker tracking uh, queue. And then they're able to actually download the product cool. that they just purchased. Cool. There you go. And uh, anyway, I've uh, I haven't been back in the e-commerce system for several years because 
you know, knock on wood, uh, after getting those first little glitches out, it's just been performing flawlessly for us. And uh, it was really, it was, I'm really glad I wrote it. And again, it's one of the nice things about having my own is that it acts exactly the way I want it to. I'm not having to beg some third party to add a feature or to fix something, nor are we having to go through a third party to, like, you know, deal with somebody who doesn't recognize what the, this charge is on their card. I mean, you know, it's just us, and, you know, we're a company that takes responsibility for, you know, making sure that everyone we've got and we come in contact to ends up being happy. So that's great. Uh, that's it's really uh, yeah. I thought uh, our listeners would get a kick out of a little bit of behind the scenes of a, a real world e-commerce system. And it's and now it's working flawlessly. You had, when's the last time you had a bug that you had to go in there and fix? But as far as I know. Uh, like, well, I actually, I never have, you know, it's like Spinrite that hasn't had a bite change in ever since Spinrite six was launched two and a half years ago. Uh, I haven't, uh, I ought to tell people <clears throat> the system's name is Bam Bam. I've, I've, uh, <laughs> I've been avoiding saying that all during this podcast, even though that's how I refer to it all the time. Bam Bam. The, Bam, Bam. the reason is that our, our original, uh, management system that was written by a gifted programmer. I didn't write it. It was written in Fox Pro for DOS wow. 20 years ago. Oh, my goodness. For some reason, we called it Dino. And I don't know why, but, you know, Dino Dinosaur right. for some reason. Right. And so when I was going to be finally after this would have been like after – 16 years because i think it's about four years ago that i wrote bam bam um i needed a name for the new system well i didn't want it to be fred or wilma uh you know that those those weren't very catchy pebbles isn't so good pebbles is not that good but i thought hey wait a how what about pebbles boyfriend bam bam i just sort of like bam bam so Anyway, that's the name of the of, of the new system, the replacement for Dino, which, b- believe me, four years ago, r- we were still running Fox Pro for DOS in order to, to manage our stuff. Um, and so it really was a dinosaur by, you know, by um, by contemporary measures. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, I've not changed a byte in Bam Bam for like four years, ever since wow. those first little glitches got taken care of. That's truly you know, amazing. Because I love, I love to code, and I love, like you know, getting it right. What fun! What a fascinating story. I, I think this is a, this is great. Someday I would hope, uh, you know, when uh, when you're old and gray and you no longer care, you might open source this. Let, at least let people look at the source code of it. No, yeah, he's not going to do I that. Could, well, <laughs> he's not going to do that. I can tell. You know, or maybe make it available on some terms. I, I, I don't know. I mean, the the problem is everybody else will want it to do their own different thing. Well, you just say and, I'm not going to support it. I'm not going to do anything to it. This is for your educational purposes only. You know, and maybe you're right. I maybe I could leave, just give it away. Yeah, or just leave out something so they can't use it. Yeah. Although, yeah, you're right. Yeah. No, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I guess it. it I, I I don't know. I don't. It's not like you're selling it. <laughs> And I know that you're not embarrassed at how, uh, at your, you know, as I would be, at how bad your code is or how bad you're commenting. Do you comment? No, actually, I'm, oh, I comment like crazy. I mean, I've, it's funny, too, because over the years I've learned how. Um, it used to be that I would write comments that, that, that I was sort of writing because I felt like I should. But th- two years later, I'd come back and I'd look at them and I'd go, okay, what? Huh? What 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 am I trying to say here? I mean, this doesn't tell me anything. And so I've really I've been much better in you know later in life in recognizing 
that I'm not going to understand what this is uh, two years from now. It's like, I don't know if you're this way, Leo, but I, when I need to take something out of the house, I now put it in front of the front door. I make it so I'm going to fall over this thing. Otherwise, I just won't remember. I just I know that I won't remember to do yeah, something too. In, unless I unless I prevent myself from being able to forget because I'll I'll just be in a different mindset and it's about mindset and so several years from now I will forget right what it you know, the mindset that I had at the time I was writing this and in fact I've had this experience just you know recently because as I was saying I'm back in adding a bunch of features that Sue has asked for in Bam Bam for for you know quite a while i'm finally you know making a lot of her little dreams come true thing you know extra stuff that she's figured out that it would be nice to have bam bam do yeah. and so i've had to now now you can see why i've been avoiding calling it bam bam for the last hour <laughs> you have to say bam, bam, bam. <laughs> anyway so i've had to go back in it's like okay uh what was i doing here why why was right. i doing this it's like oh okay so i mean yes comments are absolutely crucial although i have to say my assembly code looks so different from anybody else's um in fact i think i'll I'll, i will stick for because i've been talking about this i'm going to put a a screenshot of a chunk of this e-commerce system on the episode notes oh i'd love that i'd love to see that so people can see what it looks like because i look at other people's assembly language and it's this absolutely opaque looking stream of opcodes running down the left-hand edge of the page. And I mean, nobody could figure out what this is. Mine actually looks much more like high-level language. I use long variable names, long um, subroutine names. I mean, it's it's really, I think, readable. And anybody who wants to see what readable assembly language looks like, take a look at our episode notes, and I'm going to put a, I'll put a screenshot of of the way I edit. And I'm still in a DOS box. I'm using Brief as my editor in a DOS Brief. box. Because wow. I use because I use WordStar keystrokes, believe it or not. Oh, for, yeah. Brief for could, doing, you could program Brief to have anything, to do anything. Yes. Super macro programmable. Now, l- and, what, what uh, assembler do you use? You use MSM? I use MASM, yeah. I use my, Microsoft uh, Assembler. And do you have, uh, uh, have you written a lot of macros so that, you know, you could just code stuff that you do over and over again in a few words? Um. Not really that much because it's one of the ways that I'm so different from Mark Thompson, for example. Mark Thompson describes himself as lazy, and you will never, as long as I live, hear me use that word to describe myself. I just... I just cringe when I well, when he, but he I, uses libraries a lot. In fact, really writing and, code for him is assembling libraries together. And that's my point is he's got this thing called EMUCore, E M U C O R E, which is this amazing proprietary library of stuff that he's written over the years. And so all he does now basically is call his into his library of functions in order to do stuff. But I'm just different. I uh I love to code so much so that I just I don't mind writing the same thing over and over and over because every little instance is a little bit different and it's just it's just joy for me to write. But there are some macros that I've got. For example, um, the way a programmer will zero a register is you XOR it with itself. Right, you know, right. um, and because it's very efficient, you 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 could move 
like zero into it, but that it ends up taking up more bytes of code than XORing, for example, the EAX register with the EAX register. And you just have as, to know that. You just learn that as you use Assembler. After a while, you just know what works and what works. Yes, and in fact, you know, we've talked about XOR, and we know that, you know, if you, uh, that, that an XOR will give you a one if either of the inputs is a one, but not both. So if you think about it, XORing something with itself always makes it zero. Because if it's zero, then the result of it XORed with itself is zero. If it's one, then then the result of it XORed with itself is still zero. Mm-hmm. So it ends up all being zero. Anyway, my point is that I have a macro called zero, Z-E-R-O, and that expands to XOR, you know, uh, R, you know, R1 with R1, whatever the rest. So, for example, in my code, you'll see me say zero EAX because that's what I'm intending. So rather than saying XOR EAX comma EAX, I say zero EAX. So that's it, a macro it, you've defined, though. Exactly. Yeah. But, but, but the beauty of that is it, it's much easier for me to see right. from my mind to, to get that my intent here is to zero EAX. It's semantic. Than- it's 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 uh, semantic. It's, exactly. Uh, it's a code that sa- does what it says it does or says what exactly. It's yeah. And 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 if I didn't do that, I'd have to see whether I was using the same register um, both times right. in an XOR rather rather than using it only once and saying the word zero. Right. So anyway, I'll, I'll stick a screenshot of some of my e-commerce system up on our on our page because I think people get a kick out of it. It just doesn't look like assembler. It's right. why I'm so comfortable writing this way. Well, I've noticed that even when I ages ago was writing an assembler, that that's, that's where uh, a good uh, macro assembler can really help you. Yep. Uh, it could just make it look much more English language like that's why I asked yep. you if you used a lot of macros. So you do. Yeah, I use a few actually. I use a few. I use a few a lot. A lot, but right. I but I don't use a lot of macros. Although Masm has a very nice feature for allowing you to call the Windows API, and I use that. And I, there, it also has nice conditional instructions. I'll I'll, I'll find a, a snippet of code that demonstrates all of this stuff mm, and, and stick that. it up on our page. Love to see that. Well, Steve, it's really been fascinating. Uh, I just uh, I want to thank you for sharing a little bit in, of insight into how you work, which is so, so cool, so interesting. We also want to thank uh, the nerds on site for uh, sharing our podcast with us. Nerds on site are, is a great group of people like Steve, really. I think one of the reasons they like you so much, Steve, is they, they identify with you. Hello, nerd. Hello, nerds. <laughs> they, they include programmers, but also website designers, a lot of fix-it uh, technicians, IT guys, project managers, even sales, I was surprised to find out, and trainers, of course, security experts, antivirus gurus. Uh, they especially like nerds who like to troubleshoot, tear apart, rebuild their own systems in their own spare time. PC and Mac, Oracle to Cisco, Nerds on Site. What is Nerds on Site? Well, it's a, a group of people who do this, uh, you're in, most of them are independent contactors, but they, but they want the support of a company that can give them marketing and business uh, uh, sense. And so basically, you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. You do what you love, but you don't have to worry about running a business. They are everywhere now in Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, Singapore. Uh, and they also have a University of Nerdology, so you can keep your skills honed. Uh, systems architecture design, software development. You should probably do an assembler course for them. 
on-site, on-source IT departments, uh, desktop support, Soho and residential IT services. Look, if you want to participate, if you want to know more and find out maybe if Nerds on Site can help you in your business, visit IWantToBeANerd.com. IWantToBeANerd.com. They have site licenses, by the way, for SpinRight. So there are a lot of benefits to, to joining. And, and in fact, I just found out that they, uh, they also do a Starro. So if you want to do security, this is a very, you know, what a great, what a great skill set this would be to go into a business and say, look, I'm going to, I know how to lock your system down. Um, I, I can help you get it done right. And, uh, and, and you come in and you do it and everybody's happy. Nerds on site. They're so great. I want to be a nerd.com. We thank them so much for supporting security now. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking that, uh, one of the downsides, I know you love your assembly language, and it's so efficient and so compact. How big um, is, how big is SpinRight? Uh, SpinRight, because it's got the whole Windows side, it got a lot bigger. I think it's maybe 97K now. <laughs> I have images bigger than that. <laughs> 97K. But you were about to say it. It's not portable. Yes, exactly. It's not portable, and that's something that I have... I've regretted a little bit that I'm well. Actually, I'm going to have a problem. Yeah, as I was say, as, you're x86 specific. Yeah, exactly. As as 64 bit stuff yeah. begins to happen more and more, it's like uh, although you know Intel's really good about making sure, and Microsoft is really good about making sure that older code continues working. So I think I'll be able to stay in 32 bit mode for you know at least for a long time. What would going to 64 do? Would it, would the opcodes change? Would would the language change, or is it just you have to think in 64-bit registers. Um, yes, you have 64-bit registers. The opcodes do change. Oh. I'm trying. I've seen 64-bit assembler. I'm trying to remember now what they did. I think they use R. So R A X for register A X. So you'd have to rewrite that, everything. That would be. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no way I'm source level compatible. Um, of course, I never have been. When I went from 16 to 32, I, it used to be you had the AX, BX, CX, DX, for example. Then it's EAX, which right. is the, the, the extended, you know, extended yeah, yeah. EA. And then they went to RAX, which is the the 64-bit register. So, you know, they're, it's sort of the same architecture, but just everything's a lot bigger. And I got to say, though, Leo, I mean, I'm for the stuff I'm doing, I, I barely need 32 bits. Right. And, 64 is and, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Although I, it is really convenient to use 32 bits, but right. you know the world moves forward. Well, I, you know, I wrote some assembler, uh, 8086 assembler in the in the good old days, and then uh, I moved to Mac and was writing 68,000 assembler, and it was it was I hate to say this, uh, but it was so much cleaner because you don't have to worry about extended registers, you don't have to worry about the memory issues. Uh, it's just and it seems like just such a nice assembly language code. So maybe you could learn another assembly language. It wouldn't be that oh, yeah. hard. Oh, uh, you know, I'm I'm sure I can. I wanted to, to correct something I just said, too. I just checked the exact size of Spinrite. I was thinking of the DOS kernel portion, not the whole thing, because I've talked about, you so know, with all the, the actual program Spinrite, which is. That's well, it, it, is, it is only one. It, it's one XE, but there's a Windows portion and a right. DOS portion. Right. right. Uh, anyway, the entire thing is 173 K. Damn that so, Windows. <laughs> One seventy three. Talk about bloat. <laughs> Doubled the size. Come on, Windows. Come on. <laughs> I still have images bigger than that. I think my I think my homepage uh, on my website my homepage image is bigger than that. 
Yep. Oh, Steve, you're great. I love, I love, it's, you know, what's fun is this is, this is the, it's a little old timey and I'm sure in time it'll seem a little archaic, but this is really how it got done for so long. It still gets done among uh, the pros. And I think there's, you know, this is, this is, this is real software kung fu here. Well, I love it. Yeah. Steve Gibson, we'll see you again next week for another episode of Security Now. Security Now.